Well, good morning, church. I'd ask you to take God's Word in your hands and turn to the book of Matthew this morning. The book of Matthew. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11. Uh, verses 25 through 30 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, go ahead and grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you. You can find our passage on page 816, page 816. And as you just saw in the video, we are beginning a new uh, series, a short one, three weeks, uh, focused in on a new direction, a new vision uh, for us as a church. Uh, At the beginning of uh, January, at the beginning of the new year, our staff headed off for their annual uh, retreat. And one of the things we talked about was uh, really honing in on uh, the vision and purpose uh, of Village Bible Church across its four campuses and uh, how we were going to go about doing uh, ministry. And uh, what we're going to share with you is in some ways just a sneak preview because uh, it's not all fully developed yet, uh, number one. Number two, um, you're going to see it as uh, ministries come along and as you continue to grow uh, with us in this process. But we thought it'd be good to do a a, a sneak preview to let you know what we're dreaming, what we're thinking about. And and when you talk about uh, a new vision or a direction, there are a lot of things that a church can do to, in essence, make itself special uh, with regards to the ministry that it's a part of. A lot of churches have different focuses and and visions. Uh, Many churches are building-centered. What I mean by that is that my microphone's too close to me. Is that what I'm being told? Uh, a building a building can be the vision and focus of a church and and you see that when you see churches that are continually in these building processes that they're known their identity their their whole existence is focused in on the facilities that they have there are other churches that focus in on really centering their vision and their purpose around the pulpit ministry of of the pastor Uh, maybe he is a uniquely gifted uh, individual and uh, not only are the people of that church blessed but many other Others around the area are blessed as well, and and the church will be known for the solid biblical teaching that's going on. So others are are known for the programs. Maybe it's their worship teams, or or their children's ministries, or or student ministries, or their small groups, and and uh, people flock to that church to be a part of it because they offer something that maybe uh, no one else is doing, or they do it in such a way that nobody else can compete. There's a lot of ways and a lot of purposes and reason for a church to exist. Uh, But one way we want to focus in our attention this next three weeks is to tell you that none of those are our purposes. None of those are our vision. As a staff, we gathered together and we asked the question, if Jesus was building a church, what would he put as his focus? What would he put as his uh, vision? And then we were reminded that Jesus was, in fact, on earth building his church. Remember, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so we looked, and we recognized a couple things. Number one, when Jesus built his church, there was no building. When Jesus built his church, uh, yes, he was known for his teaching and and his ministry uh, to those who were hurting through the exercising of demons and through uh, the healing of diseases, Uh, but Jesus was more than just a great teacher. Uh, Jesus didn't have a youth group. Jesus didn't have children's ministry, and I might add, Jesus didn't even have a wana uh, to uh, serve the the people, and many times he would just literally come and, and stand on a mountainside and begin to teach and proclaim. 
But as we look at Jesus' ministry, as we look at what Jesus was focusing in, what his target was in the three and a half years that he had uh, before he went to the cross, over and over and over again, we see that Jesus' ministry, Jesus' focus was on making disciples. In his final, uh, if you will, farewell address to his disciples, he gave them the same vision and target. We call it the Great Commission. And we was, they were told, those 11 disciples, to go and make disciples, teaching them, baptizing them, and uh, teaching them all that Christ had taught them. And that they would go all throughout the world and, and proclaim this vision, this direction. And so as a church, we want to do what Jesus did. While those other things are all great, while they all may be secondary, while they all may be important in some way, shape, or form, Village Bible Church exists to make disciples. But how do we do that? How do we go about making disciples? It's easy to preach. How do we begin to really begin to to live it out? Well, we first have to ask the question this morning, what is a disciple? I want you to write down in your, your outlines this morning a definition that, that we'll use in the next three weeks. It's not written down there, so I'm going to ask you to, to look to the screen and, and write this down. A disciple is one who diligently learns, passionately loves, and purposefully lives according to the pattern of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, They diligently learn, they passionately love, and they purposely live in light of the truth that Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners like you and me. And we devote and we dedicate the rest of our lives to learning from him, to loving him, and and living for him. That is our goal. That's that's what we want Village Bible Church and all of our campuses to be filled with. That's, That's what we desire for the people of God here. How do we go about that? How do we make that? How do we join uh, God in that endeavor? Well, in any vision, simplicity is important. And so we we tried to bring it down to three very quick things as to how we're going to do it. And so we say this, Village Bible Church exists to glorify God by discovering, developing, and deploying disciples. It is a three-dimensional uh, act of discipleship. And so each of these weeks and in, in these coming days, we're going to be looking at each one of those. And this morning, we're going to look at what it means to discover disciples. What does it mean for us to begin that process of modeling what Jesus has modeled to us, how we model that uh, to others? Now, when Jesus speaks of disciple-making, he breaks it down very easily. When, when he talks to his first disciples, he says, come, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Uh, Come, he discovered them. Follow me, he taught them and developed them. And then he deployed them to become the fishers of men that he wanted them to be. And so how do we go about that first step this morning uh, of discovery? Within this series, we're going to look corporately at our role as a church as to how we are to discover disciples, but I also want to focus our attention this morning as to how you and I as individuals might be able to do that this morning as well. So I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word, and we're going to look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. Here's what the Word of the Lord says. 
At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father God, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending him so that he may model for us what it means to live, what it means to honor and glorify you in all that we do. Thank you for this pattern of of how we, like your son Jesus, discovered those that you had called to be saved. Lord, I pray that we would have a hunger and a desire, a thirst to reach those who are lost uh, with the wonderful gospel that we would see it as the grandest and most wonderful invitation that has ever been given so lord i pray that we would learn this this morning apply it to our lives and then put it into action as we leave this place in christ's name we pray amen you may be seated when one talks of the word discovery we recognize that in our culture and time discovering things is something that we celebrate and cherish uh, no less than a month from now, we will, we will stop as a nation and commemorate and celebrate the discovery of this land by Christopher Columbus. We celebrate new medical breakthroughs and the impact that they will have on the herding. We celebrate and, and uh, we stop and take pause at the new technology that, that is discovered that we will all enjoy that will make supposedly our lives just a little bit easier. As sports fans, we have loved to watch the discovery of new young talents by the Chicago Cubs organization, and also the discovery of how the South Side has continued to find ways to lose this year. Even as parents, we recognize as our children grow older that one of the greatest joys is watching those children discover life for the very first time to discover and to realize the things in the world that are before them. There's something magical. There's something exciting about discovery. And as great as each of those things are, nothing, none of them can uh, compare. In fact, they pale in comparison to the opportunity we have to discover people that have been led to Jesus Christ by God himself. As believers, there's no greater joy in this world than the privilege of helping people to discover Jesus. The Bible says that when one discovers Jesus, the angels in heaven rejoice. And that should be our response as well at the opportunity we have to help people discover the one who has changed all of who we are. But sadly, many of us as Christians miss out on this opportunity. Number one, we think it's for the spiritually elite. 
uh, to share my faith, that, that's what the pastor's job is. That's, that's a job for the elders or, or the Sunday school teacher or my small group leader. It's not for me. But the Bible makes it clear, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then your job is to share that good news with any and all who will listen. That your job as a follower of Jesus Christ is to help others discover what you yourself have discovered through the grace and mercy of the Spirit of God. It's been said that evangelism is no different than one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. You have found hope. You have found satisfaction. You have found peace. You have found salvation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it means, therefore, that as a, as a beggar who now, whose stomach is filled with all good things, we might go to the hurting, the helpless, the harassed, and we might share the good news with them on where they can find eternal life as well. But how are we to do it? Jesus in our passage makes it clear what that invitation is to look like. And if we're going to discover disciples, we need to recognize how, how do we do it? How do we go about it? What is our posture to be? What is our message to look like? How are we to go about doing what Christ has called us, mandated us to do? And I want you to notice in our text today, there are three things, if you will, three steps to how we are to help people discover Jesus Christ. And the first thing that we are to do is we are to help people see their situation. We are to help people see their situation. Jesus is called the great physician. And the reason why he is the great physician is because he is one who, first of all, diagnoses the problem before dispensing the cure. In Jesus' earthly ministry here, we see Jesus over and over again helping people recognize the reason why they're hurting, helping them recognize the reason why they're lost, helping them understand why life in so many ways is a struggle. And Jesus over and over again sought to help people understand their plights. And that is what you and I are called to do as well. But here's the problem. We do a terrible job at it, and I'm going to explain why. But before we do, we have to under help people understand the malady that plagues humanity. There's a sickness out there, and it's sin. Jesus says in our text that people are weary and heavy laden. They're burdened. Uh, if you've lived any amount of time in this world, you recognize those words, weary and burdened. We don't need to do a large study of those two words to understand what Jesus is getting at. People are broken and they're, they're hurting. They're tired. They're tired because they're living a life seeking satisfaction, seeking rest, seeking pleasure and, and excitement, seeking uh, honor and, and respect, seeking all the things that a human being would desire. But here is the problem. We try to find those things in other places other than God. And that's the problem that sinful man has. God has created man for a relationship with him. God has created man to live an absolutely abundant life when it is lived in relationship with him. But man has turned their back on God. And we, like sheep, have all gone astray, each of us turning to our own way. And as a result of our turning from that, we have created upon ourselves trial and turmoil and tribulation. 
we seek to find the satisfaction that can only be found in God in the things of this world. And as a result of that, we are on an endless pursuit for a satisfaction we will never find, for a rest that will never come. It is because of this that the devil has had us to buy into a lie. He says, if you just take in enough of this, if you just do enough of that, if you just make sure you focus in on yourself enough, then you will find satisfaction. But the British theologian C.S. Lewis said, this type of pursuit, following the lies of the devil, is like one who is thirsty, drinking salt water. The more you drink, the only thing that happens is you will only thirst for more. And so we've got a world that is seeking satisfaction. It's seeking for its, its, for its fulfillment. And it's taking in the, the, the production and the things of this world only to find itself as it drinks those things in, becoming more and more thirsty. Jesus saw this on numerous occasions. And Jesus at one point looked at the crowd, and, and when he saw the crowd, he had compassion on them. He saw them as a harassed and, and hurting people, wandering about like sheep without a shepherd. You see, evangelism begins, listen, it begins by us understanding that the world is lost and in need of a Savior. Do you see your world that way today? When you go to the office tomorrow, do you see the people you're working with as people who are hurting, as people who are harassed, as people who are seeking for the fulfillment of this world in the things of this world only to come up empty every time? Do you see your neighbors that way? Do you see your classmates that way? The problem is, is that we uh, turn a blind eye to this idea that the world is in need of a savior. We are so busy seeking our own fulfillment, seeking our own desires, that we many times turn away, forgetting that the world is in need of Jesus. But it will mean that if we're going to do that, if we're going to help people understand the malady that plagues them, then we have to minister in such a way that we have a Christ-like mindset. Notice in our text, when, when Jesus speaks to these hurting people, these broken people, we must recognize this morning that Jesus looks through the eyes of perfection. When Jesus looked at the people in Matthew 28, or I'm sorry, Matthew 11:28, he looks at them through righteousness. When you and I look at the world, we look through sinful eyes, through broken eyes. Jesus looks through eyes that have never sinned. Jesus looks through eyes that, that have never failed. And when Jesus sees it, Jesus has the prerogative to do what many of us do today without having permission to do so. Jesus could have said, all right, all you dummies out there, you dumb people, you broken, messed up people, come over here and I'll fix you. I'll get it right. I can't believe, man, you stink. Look at your life. I don't even want to get near you. Let me remind you that if anybody had the ability and the prerogative to say that, it was Jesus. And let me remind you that far too many of us are saying that whether with our words or our thinking when we look at the outside world. You disgust me. I can't believe I would never do such a thing. 
and we forget that these people are lost. You see, the Christ-like mindset that we have to have is, is our heartbeat needs to be for the lost. When Christ looked to that group of people, he didn't see people that are broken because of idols in their life. He didn't see people simply just broken because of uh, all their sexual issues and and struggles and their lying tongues and and their prideful hearts. He he saw that, but it drove him not to self-righteousness, which he could have done. He was God. It drove him to compassion. And what I want to remind us of this morning is is in the world that we live in today, it is easy to look at people's sin and be disgusted. But nowhere do we see the disgust in Jesus' words. When he says, come to me, he wants intimacy with the broken. He wants to draw near to the hurting. And I want to remind us this morning that in our day and age, evangelicals are, are, are the opposite keep our distance. Jesus is inviting the broken, the hurting, and he recognizes what we too must recognize, and that is mercy and compassion are the heartbeat of God. And he says, I know you're hurting. I know you're burdened. I know you're trying to live this life on your own, but come to me and let me change your life. Far too many of us live in that, in a contradiction to that. Our self-righteousness is seen in our disgust of the world. Not too long ago, and it's made, of course, because of the award show that took place, Miley Cyrus has created an uproar again because of what is a, a pretty provocative, and some might add an absolutely disgusting uh, picture of, of what a young lady should be involved in. And I, my heart's near and dear to Miley Cyrus. Here's why. Some years back, I had the opportunity to cater twice for her dad's a concert tour. And I got to meet Miley Cyrus. I remember Miley Cyrus as a little girl. She ran around. I'm cooking at the barbecue pit, and she's running around. This is way before Hannah Montana and all of that. And I saw on Facebook someone put something on, and it was a a video clip, and I went to it. And my first recognition was, this is disgusting. What is your problem? But then the Lord reminded me of spending just a short amount of time. By no means, we're no best friends. She wouldn't even know who I am. But I remember that little girl. And I remember that little girl, and, and God says, that little girl was made in my image. And yeah, she's gone off the rails. But Tim, let me remind you, so did you without me. And it's quick for us in popular culture to look at unbelievers, whether they're in our family, in our neighborhood, or in pop culture, to look at them and to point at them and say, what are you thinking? What are you doing? I I want nothing to do with you. And Christ reminds us that they are the very people who need the gospel. Jesus says, I didn't come to to take care of the healthy. I came to take care of the sick. And likewise, you and I are called to reach out and minister to the sick. And yes, they're going to cough on us. And yes, they're going to vomit on us. And yes, they're going to try to get us sick as well because that's what sick people do. And, And we need to recognize that. But Jesus says in that moment, he saw their situation and filled with compassion, he said, I am going to 
bring people to myself. And the job of the believer is to do that as well, to help people discover Jesus. So we show them their situation. We show them that they're lost. We help them understand that we too were lost, that we too were without a Savior. How healthy would it be for some of us to to share the good news with somebody and instead of pointing our fingers saying, yeah, I was with you. I was there. My life was filled with that. The endless pursuit of, of satisfaction, the endless pursuit of making self feel good. I was there and then I met Jesus. And all those All that working and and striving and toiling to take care of self, Jesus took care of. Jesus took care of that stuff. He took my dysfunction and, and made it functional again. He took my sin and redeemed me. Take some time this week and look around to the world around you. To those unbelievers that are closest to you. What needs do they have? Jesus knew the needs that his people had. What lies have they bought into? Are you listening to them? Are you taking time to hear them, to talk with them, to find out where their struggle is, to maybe where where they seemingly have gone off the rails? Are you there? Are you helping to diagnose the problem? Or are you there just saying, thank you, Lord, that I am not like him or like her? There's far too much of Pharisees in us today than real soul winners. And we as a church want to be active in helping people to discover Jesus, not show them the way to hell. Number two, we need to, as we diagnose the problem, we have to rightly apply the cure. And what's the cure? We need people to understand that the cure is found in submitting to Jesus' invitation to his invitation. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There is no place in all of Scripture where there is a grander invitation that could ever be given. Now, this should be sweet words for every one of us. But this invitation is only good if we accept it. This invitation isn't a suggestion. It isn't a simple idea, a thought, Jesus is commanding us as the creator of the world that we are to submit. Jesus says, I know what plagues you. I know where you're struggling. I know where you're broken. I made you. I know the amount of hairs on your head or their lack of. I I, I created you. I put you together. I knit you together in your mother's womb. I, I was there. My fingerprints are all over your life. And I know what you yearn for. And Jesus is able to say as the great high priest, I know what it's like to be in the flesh. I know what it's like to struggle with temptation. I know what it's like to deal with issues of disease and death. I've been there. I've done that. And Jesus in that moment cries out to us and says, Come, come to me. But in order to do that, we must help people recognize their desperation. In order to accept this invitation, an individual has to recognize their invitation. In essence, what has to happen is, as Jesus says, come to me, uh, this sinner has to stop and say, I have nowhere else to go. There are no other options. 
There are no more opportunities. This is my only chance. I've got nothing else going on. Everything I do, I hit a dead end. My predicament is too large for me to fix. And I need someone stronger, someone greater to deal with it. And so when Jesus comes, as the Holy Spirit convicts and, and, and reveals, as it says in verses 25 through 27, as he reveals that, as God reveals that a person is lost in their sin, the person says, yes, I will come. Yes, I will draw near to you because I am desperate. I've got nowhere else to go. And so what does that mean for us? If that's what God demands, that we recognize our desperation, what are we as believers to declare to the unbelievers in our midst? Number one, doing gospel work, number one means being honest, and Christians are terrible at that. That we would articulate that we too were desperate. We too were in need. That without him leading and guiding us, we too would be a mess. Number two, helping people to recognize their need means that we show the world that accepting Jesus Christ's invitation is totally worth it. Do the people around you, do they see you, listen, this is important, do, you, do they see you as miserable as they are? Do they see you overwhelmed by the things of this world as they are? What I mean by that is, is when you go to work or go to school, do they see you just as, as messed up and broken with no hope, no joy, no contentment, striving for the very same things that they do, or do they see you and I as different? Something about that guy. Things don't phase him like they phase me. That, that lady, she's got a peace about her. Man, her family's struggling with things, and, and she's filled with joy. What is it about them? You see, we need to show people, and then listen, we don't need to lie, but we need to show people that Jesus is the joy of the Lord, and that that joy of the Lord is our strength. That the greatest place on earth, not to steal it from Stephen Curtis Chapman, is the road that leads to heaven. And that we're smiling about it. And we're filled with joy about it. That the greatest thing that we've got going on for us is not the house we live in or the new car that we drive or the amount of money we have in our checking account, but the greatest thing we have in the world is Jesus and we want him to shine through us. And so we need to recognize this morning that one of the ways that we proclaim the gospel, St. Francis of Assisi said, is preaching it without saying a word. Are you living the gospel in your coming and going? Are you living it in such a way that someone says, I want to know more about what they're doing? Let me tell you something. In a dry and weary land, filled with pursuits of all kinds of pleasure and all kinds of substances, wouldn't it be great to find someone who seemingly has found the bread of life that takes away every hunger, the water, the living water that takes away our thirst? And we've got it if we will only show the world that it is in us. Third, and probably the most important thing that we can do in helping people recognize their desperation is recognize that this will never happen through self-righteous judgment. 
you will never, you and I will never win a soul for the Lord by pointing our finger at them. Can I remind you that Jesus never pointed the finger at anybody except for the Pharisees? And yet we think that's how we're going to evangelize. We think that's how we're going to win because when was the last time you didn't get won over in an argument with someone yelling at you and pointing at, the, at them, right? I always love when people do that to me. That does my heart good. That gives me hope. Someone tell me they're better than I am and pointing to all the bad things in my life. Jesus shows us that an invitation to intimacy is an invitation to come no matter where you're at. Now you say, whoa, Tim, wait a minute. I liked where you were going, now I'm not sure. So, so let me help you to know that I'm not going off the deep end. That's just love and love and grace and all that. Because there's that. But we got to remember that with the invitation to come to Jesus means that we must repent from disobedience. Oh yes, we've got to recognize our, our desperation, but what about turning to Christ? Don't we have to at some point say no to the old stuff? Well, absolutely. Listen, when Jesus calls to us, he's calling to us as we're wandering away from him. And in order to hear that, we have to turn and now draw close to Christ. We can, cannot accept that invitation continuing to walk the opposite way. And so as a follower of Jesus Christ, we have to help people see that they're lost. And then we need to remind them that the only way you can receive the good things from Christ is to stop allowing yourself to be God and allow him to be it. Salvation is found in heeding the invitation of Christ by ceasing and desisting all the things that you've done before his calling. You stop living the way you did, and you start living for him. You stop being lost, aimlessly wandering in this life, and you hear the call of God, it stops you where you're at, and you turn, and now you follow him. But then it means resting in his deliverance. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus was preaching to a group of people who thought that abundance was found in religion, in us doing a lot of good things. If I just did all the things that the Pharisees told me, then I would be fine. And, and, and the devil's got to lie. He doesn't have Pharisees in front of him anymore, but, but what he's taught is if you just do these things, if you just fulfill your desires, if you just get enough money, if you just do the things that will make you happy and you do it in a greater measure, the joy and the happiness will be found. And what Jesus says is, come to me, stop trying, stop toiling, and I will give you rest. I will give you contentment. I will give you satisfaction. I will draw you close to myself and you will recognize what it means to have intimacy with the Almighty you'll see that there is forgiveness. You'll see the way that you were really created to live. How God intended for Adam and Eve to live in the garden before sin entered the world in a vibrant and healthy relationship with God. That we can have confidence, that we no longer have to strive to get our sin taken care of because what God has set free is free indeed. No longer having to toil with that eternal question of what am I going to do with my sin. So look about your life and ask the question this morning, who needs rest? 
Who in your life is burdened with sin? Who needs to know that there is one named Jesus who is inviting them into a relationship with him? Who can heal their broken hearts? Who can set the captives free? Who can cleanse them from their sins? Who needs to hear the gospel that Jesus Christ came and gave up his life that we might have life in abundance? Who are you called to discover and to call to submit to God's invitation? Notice it involves one more thing, and that is that we need to help people step in the right direction. Look at verse 29. He goes on and he says, Take my yoke upon me, upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus says, All right, if you're going to follow me, then you've got to walk with me. You've got to learn from me. And as, as disciples already, we are called to help people discover what it means to walk and, and live with Christ. And notice what it means. First of all, it means to identify with Christ. To identify with Christ. He uses the term yoke. Uh, this is a word we don't use very often. In fact, some of you are getting hungry because you're thinking I'm talking about breakfast. But the yoke that Jesus is talking about is a yoke that would be placed on and oxen. It would be, it would be uh, harnessing the power that the oxen has, but yokes were usually not singular, but double. What I mean by that is those yokes were teamed together with another oxen, or that oxen was teamed together with another ox, put together in a yoke. And what Jesus is saying is, is I want you to join me in my endeavor of glorifying my Father in heaven. And so what I want you to do is put on my yoke. Christ is already in the yoke. And what it means when we put ourselves into the yoke, you don't see one oxen now, you see two. And Christ is so close to us, you don't see an, an, a, a yoke, by the way, that spans the stage. Yokes are incredibly close. You're up and close and personal with that other ox that's next to you. And when we put on the yoke of Jesus, we tell the world, I'm with him. When we put on the yoke of Jesus, we go in the same direction as Jesus is. When we uh, go into the yoke of Jesus, we not only go in the same direction and are close to him, but we also do what Jesus is doing. We, do, we devote our time and attention to the very things of God, and we need to help people recognize that it isn't take this pill and you'll have eternal life and your fire insurance from hell is all taken care of, but that to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to discover discipleship in Christ, is to put on the yoke. Now you say, why would I put on a yoke after I've just told you how burdened I am? Because Jesus says as our creator, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so we need to recognize that Jesus knows what we need. And Jesus knows how to do it. But notice he goes on and he says, I want you to learn from me. It doesn't involve just identifying with Christ, but imitating Christ as well. How do we go about this? Christ shows us the way. And we are inviting people to learn the ways of Christ. To learn from the words of Christ. Like good students, we sit down and we listen to our teacher and we take notes and we watch and the teacher shows us what it is to live like them and to learn from them. We, we mimic. I, I want to remind you that Jesus didn't announce this invitation from heaven. He announces it right before us, here on earth. 
And he displayed for us what life with Christ was to look like. And he says, I want you to mimic me. So we need to help people, listen, to mimic Jesus. And Paul reminds us as how this is to be done. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So let me ask you a question this morning. Do you live in such a way that people will imitate Christ if they imitate you? And let me remind you that I'm not just talking about your Sunday morning public life. I'm talking about in the up close and personal parts of your life that nobody sees except for God. If they were to walk you, if your fellow employees were to imitate you, would they be walking in intimate and close and personal relationship with Jesus? Would your children, would your classmates, the reason why many of us don't do much evangelism is because we recognize if I really do evangelism, they're going to see the hypocrisy coming a mile away. How can I discover disciples when I'm not discovering my discipleship in my own life? We need to help people see their situation. We need to help people submit to Christ's invitation. We need to help people step into the right direction. So what do we do to go about this? Let me close with this. I don't have a lot of time, so let me close with some action points this week. Now we know how Jesus did it. What do we need to do? Number one, we need to recognize if we are going to be a church that discovers disciples, number one, we've got to acknowledge that God alone changes lives. There's this idea when we talk about evangelism that you've got to be trained up. We've got to train you. We've got to give you these wonderful little acronyms. We've got to put together these four-point little things that just are all clean and perfect. And here's the thing you've got to remember. God is the one who changes the lives. Your message is the gospel. But you don't have to sit there in fear and trepidation. What if I can't answer this question? What if I mess this up? Jesus says, you're going to watch me bring dead people to life. You think me, uh, God isn't saying, you think I'm going to be tripped up by you messing up a word or two? He's going to change the lives. And we've got to recognize that God is the one who's going to do this. And that's a reminder for us because here's the thing. You may look at someone's life and say, they are too far gone. What could I say to them that will change them? You're absolutely right. You can't say anything. I can't say anything that will change broken and filthy sinners because nobody could say that to us. But here's the thing. God can. In a New York second, God changed one of the most hatred-filled persons that the world has ever seen in the Apostle Paul. I'll take care of it, he says. Number two, if God is the one who changes lives, we need to ask God for opportunities. When was the last time you prayed about the people around you? And I mean by name. Lord, I pray for Tony. I sit in the cubicle next to him, and I do life with him. We talk fantasy football, and we talk about what, what's going on in the world. But, but Lord, I'm going to stop, and I'm, I'm going to pray for Tony. Tony's not a believer, and I've not opened my mouth to tell him about who you are and what you mean to me. How about the Johnsons next door? We live, with one, we live by one another. We wave to one another. We even share tools with one another. But I've never asked for you to give me an opportunity to share the good news with the Johnson family. 
the reason why we don't ask for opportunities? Listen, number three, I think, is one of the biggest issues that we as a church are struggling with today because we failed to abandon Christian isolation. One of the things that I hate as the church continues to grow bigger is that as it grows bigger, it becomes real easy for you to get all that you need from this church. And, and we love the programs that are going on here because they're opportunities for people to fellowship and people to engage and people to use their gifts. But the church can become so big that you never have to have friends outside of this church. I mean, there's phenomenal people in this place. So let me ask you the question this morning. When was the last time you had an unbeliever in your home for the sake of a gospel opportunity? And I'm going to imagine that for many of us, an unbeliever hasn't darkened our doorsteps in a long time. Why do we need them? We've got all the friends we need in the world. But God says, you are called to go and make disciples. So we need to abandon that Christian isolation. You need to recognize that in this world, there's sin, and you are going to have to continually fight with sin. Not, not do all that you can to protect your family from it. I'm telling you, that's a losing idea. Because you won't. Because sin is found in the human heart. And so you may be able to stop it coming out from the outside. But the problem is you'll never be able to stop the inside from coming out. And so we need to abandon this idea that I'm not going to do things. We need Christians in the, in the public square. We need Christians serving in areas where there's no other Christians serving. I will tell you the greatest Bible story you can know right now in this post-Christian world that we live in is the story of Daniel. Daniel lived amongst pagans. They didn't like his God. They didn't quite frankly like his religion. And here's the thing. He still was able to serve them well and to serve his God well. And we need to be doing that. We need Daniels in this world who are not isolated from the world, but are active in their community. That's the third one. Does the community around you, does the workplace around you know the gem that it has in you as having a follower of Jesus Christ? Here's what I want, and I've told my, my children this. I want our community to look at us like Joseph was looked at in Potiphar's household. Potiphar, an unbeliever, said, my house is a better place because Joseph is here. My prayer for Village Bible Church is that every one of you, your community would say, we're a better place because so-and-so lives here. Everything they touch makes it more beautiful, makes it more livable. They are a breath of fresh air in our community. And that means we got to be active in it. Our neighbors need to know us. Our, our neighborhoods need to know us. Our communities need to know us. And that means we've got, they've got to see us in action. So what does that mean? We've got to look for unique avenues to make inroads. Have you asked the question, why, God, did you place me here? Why did you place me in my neighborhood? Acts 17.31 says God places us all in our times and spaces for a very distinct purpose. So God, why did you give me this job? Why did you put me next to this person? Lord, why did you give me these neighbors? Is it for a purpose? Is it for a plan? Well, then I'm going to look for those opportunities because you didn't just place me here to be a bump on a log. You placed me here to be the light of the world. 
to be the salt and light you've called me to be. And so I'm going to look for unique opportunities to shine my light and to spread this salt to the world around me. And what that will mean is we have to be available at all times to share the gospel. When was the last time we shared the good news with someone? Where we said, I was blind, but now I see. Where I found the one who has the answer. His name is Jesus. Here's what I've come to know in my own experience. I work myself up into a frenzy of all the reasons why I shouldn't share the gospel, of what they may do. And here's what I've always learned. Everything I'm worried about never comes true. It never does. That doesn't mean they accept. It doesn't mean they sit there and say, oh, you are so great and wonderful. Man, thank you for that. Sometimes they say, you know what, Tim? I don't buy it. And I think, quite frankly, you're a little bit crazy. And that's okay. Because they're not, they're not getting mad at me. They're not rejecting me. They're rejecting Christ, and here's what I've come to learn. Jesus is okay with that. Jesus has been there, and he can handle it on his own. And my job is to proclaim the good news and leave it up to God. Are you discovering disciples? We will never accomplish our purpose here on earth unless this first part of our vision is completed. And I will tell you, this is the one that the elders would say we struggle with the most. Oh, we develop disciples. We're doing a good job, I think, at that. We're deploying disciples. There's no doubt that people are serving and using their gifts in multiple ways. But I will tell you that this is an area we must get better if we're going to glorify God in this time and place. So let's endeavor to do it. Let's seek God's face and let's, let's seek him and the power that his spirit gives so that we might do this. And I will tell you that when we discover disciples, there's nothing greater in this world. And let's come back next week and speak of the opportunities that God gave us to share his good news with all those that we come in contact with. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and I thank you for your word and I thank you for your example this morning of what it means to share your good news with others. And I pray, Lord, we know it. We've heard it. Now let's go and do it, Lord. And so I pray for unique opportunities for each of these individuals in this place. Lord, I pray for unique opportunities for me in the coming week, in my coming and going, that I might be able to be bold, that you may open up doors, so that, my, that when I speak, your words will be the words that I speak. I pray this for myself. I pray this for our people so that we may see an ever-growing group of people, not just because people have come from one church or another, but they come because for the first time they've met Jesus. And now they want to be developed in that relationship and grow in that relationship. Let us be hungry for souls. Let us, as the reformer said in Scotland, give me Scotland or I'll die. I pray for our people that they would say, give me my neighborhood or I'll die. Give me my school or I'll die. Give me my workplace or I'll die. A heart's passion to win the lost at all costs. We love you and we thank you for this gospel that you've given us. This treasure that you've handed to us in jars made of clay. That we may go and share it with others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.